you cannot address terrorism with military means alone, that you have to couple that with diplomatic and humanitarian aid and a, a political resolution. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. I am coming to you from Halifax, Nova Scotia, where I am attending the Halifax International Security Forum. The conference brings together elected officials, policymakers, military and civil society leaders from the United States, Canada, and allied nations around the world. This is my third year at this conference, and it is always a valuable opportunity for finding great podcast guests. And at the very start of the conference, I was glad to sit down with Congressman Jason Crow a Democrat from Colorado who was first elected in 2019. Congressman Crow is someone who is widely seen as a rising star in democratic politics and whose views on foreign policy and international affairs I've always found to be nuanced and well thought. Given the ongoing crisis in Israel and Palestine, I was interested in his views on the propriety of a ceasefire and more broadly, U.S. policy towards the Middle East right now. So here is my conversation with Congressman Jason Crow, recorded live at the Halifax International Security Forum. So to kick off, I'd like your view on the propriety of an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and Israel right now. What's your current thinking on that? Well, I've been very clear that Israel has a right to defend itself and to respond to the terrorist attack of October 7th. We also learned a lot of lessons during our 20-year war against terror. We spent over $3.5 trillion, over 6,000 American lives, and tens of thousands of other lives taken around the world, and in some ways, our, our credibility, too. And we spent all that time and effort, and yet we still deal with the threat of ISIS and al-Qaeda. So the lesson that I draw from that is that you cannot address terrorism with military means alone, that you have to couple that with diplomatic and humanitarian aid and a, a political resolution. So I am concerned that right now we are on a path where we don't have the right proportion of diplomatic and humanitarian concern about this issue, and that it's being done solely through a military lens, and that ultimately that that won't be successful. So what I have called for is a humanitarian pause. And why I think the humanitarian pause is the right way to go about this is because we're asking for Israel to do something, right? A ceasefire implies that all parties to the conflict have both the capability and the willingness to abide by a ceasefire. Hamas has neither of those things, right? Hamas, by definition, is a terrorist organization that lives outside of rules, doesn't agree to rules constructs, that, you know, in many ways is the definition of terrorism and how terrorist groups act. And Hamas is also not a monolith. We also know that. 
It's a compilation of a dozen different groups with different command structures. So even if you got one command structure or one group to abide by it, doesn't mean that the others would. So it's, in my view, it could not be effectuated. That's why humanitarian pause, I think, is the right way to go about this. I guess, is there a contradiction, though, in your earlier invocation in the need for, you know, more diplomacy, more humanitarian aid, and the advocating like a lesser humanitarian pause versus a more broad ceasefire. Humanitarian pauses are what the Biden administration has been calling for now for a few weeks, yet it seems that Israel is not abiding by humanitarian pauses or the most recent formulation at the UN, the Security Council resolution that was passed was an enduring humanitarian pause. That does not seem to be happening. So is there that contradiction between wanting a modicum of restraint, as you seem to suggest, was a mistake the U.S. made years ago, and one that Israel might be making now. No, I disagree with the characterization that a humanitarian pause is, as you say, lesser than a ceasefire. I want to be really clear here. We have to be very specific about what it is we are asking to have happen and to whom we are making those asks. Right? Hamas is a terrorist organization that will not follow the rules. They will not abide by agreements. They will never stop fighting. They will never stop using human shields. That's what history shows. There's nothing in history that would show that they would abide by a ceasefire or abide by any type of agreement, period. So what we are asking is to engage with Israel for them to take a different approach, one that's based on the lessons that we learned during our 20-year war on terror, of which there are many many of which I learned personally fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, that puts protection of civilians and humanitarian needs front and center. Because ultimately, the pathway to peace, the pathway to stability, both for Israel and the broader Middle East, will be that. You can't win a war against terror with military means. All you can do with a military is you can contain a threat and you can shape the battlefield to then open up avenues for political, diplomatic, and humanitarian resolution. And that ultimately is the direction we need to go. So what else then can the U.S. government do, can the Biden administration do to get to that state? Because right now, the current state of play seems not to be going in that direction. I believe the Biden administration has been pushing very hard to make sure that Israel slows down, that they understand the lessons that we've learned over our 20 years of our war on terror, which in many ways was not successful and that we take a different approach that can put us on a pathway to several things, right? And my view is we have to have a serious discussion and actually maybe for the first time in my life, be serious about a two-state solution. We have to make sure that we're addressing violence in the West Bank uh, and the illegal settlements. We have to make sure that we don't go back to an IDF occupation of Gaza. We should not go back to pre-2005. That would be a failed policy, both for Israel and and the soldiers on the ground and the Palestinian people, and that we actually put pressure on the Saudis and other powers in the region to come to the table to actually help solve this issue too, because we will need the support of the Abraham Accords countries, the Arab countries, to ultimately establish security in Gaza and to get on a path to a Palestinian state. How concerned are you that the conflict in Gaza and the West Bank, too, for that matter, may spread throughout the region? And in many ways, it already has, right? We've seen nearly daily attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria and U.S. retaliating. 
you know, it seems like we're one accident away or miscalculation away from like a potential mass casualty event involving U.S. soldiers in the region. What can be done to prevent that outcome? And how do you see the regional dynamics unfolding? I am very concerned about rapid escalation. I mean, let, let's be really clear. This can get much worse and it could get much worse quicker, right? Even though Iran actively supports terror, their regional aggression, their support and their buildup of Hamas, Iran could get involved in this in a more robust way. Lebanon and Hezbollah could do the same. The Houthis have already fired rockets or drones in our direction, but they could also get a lot more involved. So there are many players that could enter the fray, literally speaking, that have not in a very rigorous way yet. Now, we do know that Hezbollah, of course, has opened up to some degree in Northern Front and there is fighting, but it could get far worse. So keeping a lid on that is really important for us. And, you know, we have tens of thousands of troops in the region. We have aircraft carrier battle groups in the region. So the security of U.S. troops is very fundamental here. So that's number one. And I think a surge of resources, the surge of deterrent power in the region will be very important for doing that. But also engaging diplomatically will be very important as well, which Secretary Blinken has been doing vigorously. The other thing that I'm concerned about, though, is that if we don't address the humanitarian issue in the future of Gaza quick enough and adequately enough, then will that put out of reach the prospect of normalization of relations between Israel and Arab countries? Right? Will it put out of reach normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia? So I'm very concerned that what happens over the next couple of weeks and months will be fundamental to how broad a pathway towards long-term peace and stability there will be in the region. Then what can be done to increase the amount of humanitarian aid right now that's going through Rafah? What can be done to press Israel to allow more aid trucks through, to allow fuel through more consistently? What else can the administration do? Well, I've been a proponent of asking the IDF to slow down its offensive, to allow safe passage for civilians to exit the largely northern Gaza conflict area, to establish humanitarian corridors, to protect those humanitarian corridors, to also establish humanitarian buffer zones, and to very aggressively work with other countries, Egypt, Arab countries, the United States, to flow humanitarian aid into the south, and to do that very quickly. And to make sure, as you point out, fuel flows as well too, right? The loss of generator support, you know, telecom is going down, hospital support is going down, clean water obviously is impacted by that. There's a lot of secondary effects that we're seeing as a result of the lack of fuel, and that has to be a priority. Again, everyone's been saying that. The UN's been saying that for a long time. The Biden administration has been saying that, at least publicly, for a long time. Yet it still hasn't happened. So what else ought to be done to pressure Israel specifically to let that amount of aid and fuel in? Well, it needs to happen. And myself and others, elected elite leaders, political leaders in the United States, need to be vocal about this. That we, we do this because we want peace and security and stability, because we want to prevent another terrorist attack like we saw on October 7th, and because we believe that the Palestinian people also have the right to live in security and dignity and peace. And we will be very vocal about it, like I have been and will continue to be. So you also mentioned a priority, keeping a, a lid on the conflict from metastasizing throughout the region. One way in which the administration has done that thus far has been through moving more military assets to the region. Has that been adequate? And is there any other measure that you might recommend to prevent this conflict from spiraling throughout the region? 
I right now don't have any reason to believe that the military response and the surge of forces in the region has been inadequate. The attacks against U.S. troops has skyrocketed. You know, there have been over 40 attacks in the last five weeks against our installations, against our our operating bases throughout the region. So a drastic increase in aggression in the region. So right now, it seems like we're doing what's necessary. But, you know, that's also, this is a challenge, right? Because you can escalate things by doing too much, by over-surging. So there's always a balance here, determining what is the right level to put you know, additional forces in the region to up the defensive posture and protect the forces that we have in place, but also not aggravate the situation or send the wrong message to Iran and, and other powers in the region. So a question on accountability for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Karim Khan, the ICC prosecutor, has opened an investigation into Hamas and Israel's actions. This investigation technically predates uh, October 7th, but surely the events of October 7th and since will feature in this investigation. Should the United States support the International Criminal Court's investigation in Israel and Palestine? I don't know enough right now. I haven't looked at the terms of that investigation, and I would have to do that uh, specifically to see what you know, Mr. Khan is investigating and what the mandate is. So I'm not going to speak to that. I do believe that we should support the International Criminal Court generally as a body. I think that that American leadership would be needed. I think that it would send a better message if we were to engage in supporting the adherence to international humanitarian law and the laws of war. In fact, one of the things that I did was push very hard in the last Intel Authorization Act to create a carve-out, and I worked with the Senate on this as well, to create a carve-out that would allow the United States to share intelligence regarding Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Because I think American leadership matters a lot, and I've encouraged those investigations to go forward. So, so yes, I mean, we have to be consistent across the board to make sure that if there are abuses, that we you know, apply that equally in, in given instances. So, in theory, I mean, you've shown you're open to working with the International Criminal Court in Ukraine, so potentially see where the investigation leads in Israel and Palestine. It seems that this conflict in Israel has exposed and exacerbated tensions within the center-left, left-of-center coalition that a year from now, less than a year from now, will need to mobilize in order to elect Biden and prevent the potential threats to American democracy from taking hold in the form of, of Donald Trump. How concerned are you that so long as this conflict continues, those tensions will escalate and undermine that domestic political coalition that's required to prevent democratic backsliding in the United States? Well, we're a long ways out from the election, right? And and first and foremost, you just have to do the right thing. And we should lead with our values and we shouldn't let politics determine whether or not we're going to enforce humanitarian law, the protection of civilians. We just have to do that, period. And then the politics will take care of themselves. So I do believe we have to aggressively make sure that we're sending the right message to the world to the global South and to the rest of the world that you know America means what it says and that we do gain our strength from our values. That's number one. Number two, you know, the Democratic Party is a big tent party and we've never shied away from really rigorous debates and we're seeing that happen right now. You know, I don't want to be the lockstep that has become the current congressional Republican caucus. That is not who we are. I don't shy away from healthy and rigorous debates and we'll have those. That makes us stronger in the end. So um, we'll have the debates, we'll have the discussions. I think the third point would be, there's really no comparison, right? We're trying to find the right path forward, right? Democrats in the Senate, 
Democrats in the House, the administration, we're trying to find the right path forward here and keep a very diverse coalition together with a wide variety of views. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is literally talking about deporting Muslims, right? They just introduced a, a bill in the House of Representatives, the Republicans, to deport Palestinians. So it's not even close <laughs> in terms of who is in good faith trying to do the right thing and find a path forward in a very complicated situation versus who will otherize, will demonize, and frankly, turn their backs on our core values in the Constitution and all of those folks who you know, are, are our brothers and sisters around the country, period. So, so is the answer to keeping the coalition broad just to keep having conversations? I mean, from where I sit, it seems to be fracturing. Well, conversations and an outlet to listen and to learn with each other is always important, right? I mean, I don't think quote unquote, having conversations is a bad thing, something to frown on. I mean, talking to people, listening and learning. I mean, that's actually what I do as a representative, right? I've had roundtables with Jewish community leaders back home. I've had roundtables with Palestinian leaders and Muslim leaders. I listen to them. I learn from them. I empathize with the situation. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's, I think, a fundamental task of a leader. But also so is delivering and actually taking concrete action in response to that. And that's what we talked about here today, is making sure that we're being aggressive to address humanitarian issues. We're being aggressive to make sure that our actions match our rhetoric, and we're being aggressive to defend innocent civilians wherever they might be. Lastly, what is your current thinking on the thoughts of the supplemental, the additional funding for Ukraine and for Israel? It seems the Republicans are trying to extract some compromises in order to get this through. How do you see this process moving forward? You know, I still am optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic that a Ukraine supplemental, an Israel supplemental, a humanitarian supplemental, and a border supplemental, and in some packaged variation of the four, and maybe also some money for Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific, will go through. The question is, will it go through in time? Right? Time is important here, and every passing day is not without great cost in lives as well as opportunity. So we are running out of time. There's no doubt about that. But I do believe we're going to have to make sure that we're giving some money to secure the border and to address the humanitarian crisis at the border as well, which is untenable, as well as address Israel and Ukraine. What I would like to see, though, is a better ratio between Money's allocated to meeting the humanitarian crisis in um, Israel and in Gaza to military support. I think we need to allocate more money to address the growing humanitarian crisis in the region for all the reasons we discussed today. Congressman, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you. <laughs>